All right. Was that you, Peter, or the dog? I think that was you, wasn't it? Yeah. Peter's barking at the dog. Suddenly multilingual. <laughs> English a dog, right. So I have a minimalist wallet. This is my wallet. It carries just the bare minimum. But let's say for a second that I had one of these. Do you know what this is? This is a, a replica of a 1934 $500 bill. How many of you ever held a $500 bill? Five $100 bills. Okay. If you had five $100 bills in your pocket and you were thinking about it and you knew about it, what would they be doing? Would they be burning a hole in your pocket? Anybody that, is there anybody in here that five $100 be, be burning a hole in your pocket? I could, I, I could go to dinner. I could buy this. I could buy that, right? Burning a hole in your pocket. By the way, you might be wondering, I need to let you know, I didn't do this right. It says that I'm in John 6 in the bulletin. I'm not. It's like when you go to a, it's like when you go to a restaurant and it says the special today is salmon and you order salmon, but they're out. You don't get it. <laughs> right, you're not having salmon that day. Um, Wednesday night in Bible study, we... Uh, kind of went into a, what I would call a cul-de-sac, right? You're along the main tr track, and there's this little question, and you come over here. And I became convinced that uh, Sunday sermon needed a change, and so we're doing some of that. But how do you do deal with money in your pocket? Do you leverage it for your own self or for somebody else's benefit? Probably... Probably everybody in here, whether they like to admit it or not, leverages most of the money in their pocket for themselves and some for somebody else. Right? Does that make sense? Let me, I'm in Philippians 2 this morning, and I'm going to have you turn to Philippians 2 in just a second. You can start if you want. I'm going to read one, uh, verses 1 to 11. But I want you to notice something specifically in verse 6 when we get there. So if you want to turn to Philippians 2, and you can just follow along if you're in your pew Bible or whether you brought your own, and they'll all be different. That's part of the joy of all the translations. Here's mine, verse 1. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. I hear people turn into, do you know where Philippians is? I have a trick. It's in the New Testament. You go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And then the Paul books are in order of length. That is super helpful, not alphabetical. But the longest one is first, that's Roman. And the second longest one is Corinthians. And then it goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So we're in Philippians. I just heard turning pages, right? After Corinthians, it's God's electric power company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Everybody needs a trick to memorize something. Okay, we there now? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue with 
um, verse 2, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and one purpose. We could spend a whole sermon on just that. How easy is it to work together with one mind and one purpose? We could spend some time there. That's not, that's not where we're going today, but we could. Don't be selfish. We could spend a whole lot of time right there. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Verse 5, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Verse 6, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Is that what your versions that you're looking at said? What do some of your versions say that, or that just read out that verse nice and strong and loud for somebody? If you've got something. Okay. So didn't count equality as something to be grasped. That's what most of your translations say, yes? Something along that lines? Is there anybody with something other than equality with God's something to be grasped at? The Greek word here really means that Jesus, being God, didn't think that being God was something that he should leverage for his own benefit. Think about that for a second. That's why I brought out my $500 bill, right? It's, well, it's not counterfeit. It's replica. <laughs> it's, not, it's not been used as legal tender. <laughs> replica. Its color is wrong on purpose. What's the difference between clinging to equality with God in your mind? When you read it that way, you start thinking, well, if I equal, then I have to hold on to that. That's quite a bit different than what the Scripture is actually saying in the original Greek, which is Jesus is God and doesn't think that the position of God is something that he should use for his own benefit. Now, lots of times with the first translation as as something to cling to, the next verse is read this way. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. It's not the thought going on actually in the Scripture. The thought is he gave up that position for himself and started to work for other people's interests. That's the thought of the Scriptures in Philippians 2. Not he emptied himself and only became man. And this is really a big deal. For one thing, we were talking about this Wednesday night ever so briefly for an hour and a half. (laughs) Ever so briefly for an hour and a half. When Jesus is on earth and he does the mighty deeds, the miracles, is it his godness that does that or his humanness? You think it's Godness, okay? Okay, at the cross, when he sacrifices himself and he gives himself for the world, is that his humanness or his Godness? Okay, humanness because he dies, right? That's why you think, I think it's exactly opposite. (laughs) 
Thank you for being brave and putting yourself out there. I appreciate that. I think it's exactly opposite. See, and here's where I come from theologically. When, when Adam and Eve, see the story, if you can read this thing, if you could read this, this little poem here with Adam and Eve in the garden in mind here, that they didn't think that their equality with God was something to be clung to, but they did cling to it, right? They tried to keep it. It's good to be even with God. It would, it, would be, it would be good to be like God. Do you, do you hear? That's the, the Garden of Eden story. Um, he told us not to eat this thing because it, dying, surely we would die. But it looks good to be even with God. See, that's the exact opposite. And because of that, do they end up in the Garden of Eden or do they end up in exile? Exile. But the vocation of Adam, he, Adam and Eve, humans, that's what Adam really means, human. Adama, the female form is human. They both mean human. The vocation is they're called to be the middle part to represent God into the world and represent the praise and reflect or represent the praise of the world back to God. That's the call of Adam in the middle. And when he's doing that, He's in charge of the known order of things, naming things even, right? We like to name things, but we're not, we're not really in charge. You know, um, we name things, and then other people name them different things, and then we have to fight over which name they are. But, but in the original order, it's that. So when Jesus comes and he lives fully into the human vocation, right? He's doing the things. He's representing God to the earth, and he's representing the praise of, of the earth back to God, he actually has authority to heal infirmities and all those things because that's the humanness. Fully human. Authority on earth. How many of you live perfectly human lives? By the biblical definition, perfectly human lives is to perfectly represent God into the world and to represent the praise of the world back to God. How many of you do that? I'm trying to get my hand in my back pocket as fast as I can. But at, the, but at the cross, at the cross, it took a sinless life. At the cross, dying at the cross, that's God fully involved. So when we live out this thing, though Jesus, he was God, did not think of equality with God as something to be leveraged for himself, came down to earth doing what God would do as a human if he were one. Fill the vocation and give himself for others. That's a really big deal that we understand that Jesus didn't give up his godness to be here. He was God. He was just doing it exactly the way God would do it. He's God. Funny thing about that. That's what was going on in John chapter 5 and 6 and 7 as well. He's, he is the full representative of God on earth. And the reason I'm doing this today is I want to read this whole story. So if you're Adam and you get to this spot and you don't give up your privileges and you don't die on the cross, you end up in exile. That's the story of Israel, is it not? I love to tell the story. Not that story. I love to tell the story of how it worked when it should have worked. 
But if you see Abraham, he's obedient and he takes his nephew Lot with him and they're disobedient in the land. They don't give up their privileges. They think they they should be in charge of things and deciding. And what happens to Israel, even at Abraham's time? Into Egypt, in exile. They come back with Moses. Are they perfectly obedient? Do they do all? No, we're going to do it our own way. And off into Babylon in exile. You could put your own name in here if you like. How have you been? Were you, were you, the first time you were obedient, Jesus called your name, you answered, you say, you're my Lord and Savior. Have you been perfectly obedient since then? Are you in the promised land or do you feel sort of in exile? Honestly. Kind of in exile, huh? We're not, we're not in the promised land at the moment. We're not in the age to come. We're not living full lives in heaven. We're here on earth. Now, this is how it should have been for all of those stages if we had been able. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, it, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. By the way, that's a really good description of what the cross is. If you were wealthy or powerful enough in the ancient world, you didn't die on a cross. Paul was beheaded. He was a Roman citizen. They didn't crucify Roman citizens except in really strange and dire circumstances. But the death on the cross was for the lowly. They're for the rebels, the ones who, aren't, who are, make a mess of society. Therefore, because he did it, because he was obedient, he lived the life that way, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that, the name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Profoundly different thoughts here, isn't it? What does it mean to to come in and have the same mind as Jesus now that you're his? Now that you're his, what does it mean to have his mind? It means to stop leveraging everything for your benefit and start leveraging things for other people's benefits. Is this a hard word? Does this feel hard to you? It only feels hard because you know who you are. And you think, I can't do it. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break one of my column in the newspaper rules. I wrote this this week for the paper. It'll be out in two weeks. But this is for you guys. Okay, this is what I wrote. This is the article. God knows who you are. One of the most stunning epiphanies that have come to me is this. God knows who I am. What I mean by this is that the Lord of the universe isn't fooled by who I tell him I am. He isn't mad or angered by the inaccuracy of my story either. He just knows. He isn't hoodwinked by me or anyone else. 
all our foibles, all our mistakes, all our, all our disappointments, all our victories, all our internal squeamishnesses. All of it just laying out before him, plain, unmistakably, unwaveringly, he knows who we are. Without dismay or frustration or surprise, he absolutely knows us. Without a doubt, our creator God is not taken in by who we tell ourselves that we are either. There's a difference there, isn't it? How you tell other people who you are and how you tell yourself who you are. And he's not fooled by either of them. He is not led astray by our subtle subterfuges, nor is he confused by the inconsistencies of our internal confusions or muddles. No matter how many times we repeat the story to ourselves, he is not put off by the repetition. God knows who you are. He knows all about you and why you're doing what you're doing right now, even if you don't understand it yourself. God knows all about me, you, and that lady over there. This is the article. I lost my spot. And he loves us right where we are. And in that place, no matter how dark, no matter how deluded, no matter how secluded that place might seem to be, his attitude towards us is, isn't soured or tainted by any of what I may or may not have mentioned above. All of the messy, erratic rebelliousness that is in you and in me and in other places in our life is any word that might describe your life is understood and known and considered by him. And it is right there in that spot where he not only seeks you, but finds you and loves you. Okay, I want you to take a breath. Take a moment to hold and let that thought ruminate in and through and over you. God's love, this love, is not blind love. It's, lo it's a loving God. It's not a loving God without full disclosure. God does all he does for us, all of this, so that we might know that we are his people, his disciples, his, his creation, his creatures, his world, his people, his treasured possession. Just as God isn't satisfied with only knowing you as you represent or misrepresent yourself, he isn't interested in us having a blind love or trust for him either. Think about that for a second. How many times have you been told in church that you should just blindly trust God? Do any of you blindly trust anybody? Never. No, don't do that. Truly, no matter how misleading or horrendous or overly simplistic third-party witnesses have, we've heard about him are, you see, just as I am not always who I think I am, neither is God always as he's been represented. 
God knows you and wants you to know him for who he really is. And so the invitation is to take off the blinders and interact in person. The easiest, most accessible way to do this is with Jesus, who is, as Colossians 2 would say, the very image of the invisible God. Do you want to know what God's like? John 5, right? He only does what he sees the Father doing. Colossians 2, he's the very image of the invisible God. In the midst of this getting acquainted where we live and breathe and have our lives, if you want to look that up, that's Acts 17, that is where we really meet him. And this, this is about living into an ever-deepening, further up and further in bond with your creator. Today, may you take the time to listen and lean into this knowledge that God is always seeking you right where you are in spirit and in truth. May you live and move and be surrounded by the realization that you are God's and God is yours. That's from Song of Solomon. So, the reason why I go into this is because we haven't lived into this thing and we often tell ourselves, God would only be satisfied if I could be better. And even in the Sunday school class today, the question was about, right, are we good enough? Are we... What about the bad people? Are they bad enough to not get in? I said it a couple of times in class, didn't I? There's no good people and there's no bad people. There's just people. And goodness doesn't get you there. It's not the standard. It's like the wrong currency. You walk into the grocery store and, and you have American currency, but you're in Bangladesh. They don't, they don't accept it. Goodness and badness is the wrong currency here. Trust, living, I think my thing, living into what it means to be his, that you trust him, that you lean into him, that you know who he is. This is the currency that gets you into heaven. Not whether or not you've earned it. What was the great image about the backpack in Sunday school in your class this morning? Last week I sat in in Ken's. This week I sat in in Randy's. It goes like this. The good people have all their stuff and their accomplishments in their backpack and they want to take that into heaven. And the bad people have a backpack too. And they don't, they don't get to take it in. The point is, neither of the, none of the backpacks go in. The good ones or the bad ones, they're not going in. It's not how you gain entrance. We have all this discussion about what about the good ones, what about the bad ones. It's not how... It's, none, no, not one. No, not one. It's about trust and love and all this stuff. And by the way, I love this, and I haven't read this verse in a long time, but if you go to Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, it's in 10, I think, and I'll just gloss it. So Isaiah 53 is, by his stripes we are healed. It's that Christmas, right, that, that Easter verse. We read that all the time, by his stripes. Down at the end, just after where all the famous people stop reading, it says... When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he's satisfied. 
That's the point of why I'm telling you God knows who you are. When he sees what's accomplished by his anguish at the cross, the way that it does its work, he doesn't sit there and say, man, I just wish that was a little more effective. So disappointed. No, he looks at it and he says, yes, that's why I did that. Look. And he doesn't go, oh, do you see how great I am? Do you see how bad the raw material was? I fixed it. No, he does it because he thinks you're worth it. Not because you're bad material and he can just fix it. But you're his and he is yours. And all of this because he leveraged his nature for us, not for his own goodness. Would you, would you repeat something with me? I am his. Okay, one more time with the verb. I am his. He is mine. I am his and he is mine. I am his and he is mine. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That's what that is. That's about the relationship of God this morning. Can you hear it? Can you hear it through all the little earmuffs that you put on to say, I, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. Just let this just slip in just a little bit. He loves you so much and he knows exactly who you are and leveraged his nature, his very nature. He did what he did because he could to fix the situation, the Donnybrook that you got yourself into and me. Okay. If I could have my song team come up, I will pray. So we're trying something new. Did you see that? Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Help us hear that you love us, that we are yours and you are ours. I am his and he is mine. If we could just repeat that 15 times this week to ourselves, we could begin to live into the trust not a blind trust, but a real trust, a real knowledge of him. In your precious name, Lord, help us live that way. And of course, that's why you gave your spirit. And so we're very thankful. Amen.